Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today, as part of our election boot camp series, we are talking all things election, also known as Election 101, also known as Why Your Vote Does Matter. And why Misasha is a total nerd. Oh, my God. Can you tell how excited I am? I'm like, let's talk about voting. Now, for real, like if you think if you're already going to vote and you already know how the electoral college system works and you, you know, already know that people are being discriminated against at the polls and you don't want to know any more of that stuff. Mark, this episode is played and move on. But. Uh, it's a really technical thing, but I'm going to be asking a lot of questions that I didn't know about the election process because we have been surprised at the number of people we've heard who are like, eh, my vote doesn't count or, eh, my husband votes for me anyway, so it doesn't matter. Like jaw dropping, like we have to vote and our vote matters. And I want you to know that your vote matters too and how this process works and therefore why you're more likely to vote basically. Right. So that's what we want to talk about today. I love it. It's like you just gave like a speech in the huddle, right? Like, go team, let's vote. Break. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, if and if you're just finding us for the first time and you want to hear more about why we're doing this election boot camp series, like go back and listen to our last episode because we sort of got into why we're talking about the election and some episodes past that as well. So if you did listen to our last episode, hopefully that got you super pumped for the election. I mean, I feel like a total nerd saying that, but like I said, did I not say that already? Yes. <laughs> At least you're owning it. Uh, I do love the shit out of some procedure. Yeah. Just give me all the procedure or issue spotting. Or, okay. Anyway, I'll stop. But today, you know, as Sarah mentioned, we're here to talk about what is an election. I mean, okay, you know what that is, but do you know some of the technical or nuances, the differences that go into our elections and especially our presidential elections, which are kind of different than our local elections at a county or city level. So we are here to break that down for you. And if you do know all those things already, as Sarah mentioned, also let us know because you should come speak at like my kid's school for sure. <laughs> like as we were researching this, I was like, holy crap, I don't know half these things. And I have forgotten them since civics class or I was going to say social studies, but I don't want to go into that joke. So, <laughs> And I will bet that recent U.S. citizens who had to take this exam and all this stuff probably know it better than we did. Cause I do not remember learning this stuff at school ever. Right. And, you know, I volunteered to be an election protection. You know, they have lawyers volunteer to man hotlines. And literally, I get these calls from polling places. And I'm like, hold on, let me just Google that. So there's a lot of stuff that you're, you may not know, you may not remember. um, And that's totally fine, because we'll talk about resources that are out there, too. So don't worry that this is like the one crash course that you have on elections, because we know it's like a year to the presidential election, but less than a year to primaries, which is something we're going to discuss, too. Yeah, that surprised me how soon they're coming up. Okay, so let's get into it. Yeah. How do we elect a president in the United States? So an election for president of the United States happens every four years on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. So the next presidential election will be November 3rd, 2020, which is basically the biggest, most important save the date that you will have in 2020. Okay, I understand that's subjective. And yeah, total nerd. Just saying. How many times can we call you a nerd in this episode? Let's count. I know you're calling me in your head, even if you're not actually saying it out loud. So is that what this face is saying? Yeah, that's what it's saying. A gigantic nerd. But I feel I'm used to that face, though, in our friendship when you're like, why are you saying that? Okay. anyway, back to elections. 
the election process begins with primary elections and caucuses. So like we just discussed, those were coming earlier than November. So those are the two methods that states use to select a potential presidential nominee. And in general, primaries use secret ballots for voting. So what is a primary election? And then I want to talk about caucuses after that, because that stuff is crazy. I literally did not know that or did not remember that. So primary elections, which are a key part of our voting systems, are held for most public offices when there are multiple candidates, usually from the same party seeking office. So, for example, at the time that we're recording this, which is November 6th, there are a lot of candidates for the Democratic nominee for president. So there would be a definite Democratic primary and if you're a Democrat or you're in a state where you can vote as a non-party affiliate and can vote for whatever ballot you pick, you will be picking your Democratic nominee. And then your state as a whole will be picking that nominee. But primaries often offer a crucial opportunity for voters to take control and weigh in on the issues that matter to them the most. So it's not just candidates. That's one example. But it's also some of the issues that impact you locally as well. So that ties into our like last episode when we talked about start thinking about what matters to you. You can use that once you identify it by basically finding the candidates who address those issues in the primaries to push them forward as opposed to other candidates who don't even agree with or talk about your issues that are important to you. Is that right? Yeah, totally. Because you're narrowing down the candidates, basically. You're getting to that one candidate from a political party who's going to be that party's nominee for president. So primaries can be held anytime throughout the year, but most primaries are held February through June. So for this upcoming election, it'll be between February 2020 through June 2020. That could be like three months from now. Yeah, it's really soon. And so you really want to know when your state primary is, because if that's soon, and like Sarah was saying, you want to learn about the candidates and their issues, you've got a short amount of time to learn about them. Because for both of us, it's our primaries are on March 3rd. Okay, Colorado. Okay, California, March 3rd. Mark your date or mark your calendar. Yeah. So in many areas, the outcome of primary elections are really important and have a huge impact on the outcome of general elections, which is the presidential election in this case. But unfortunately, very few voters actually go to the polls or, you know, do a mail-in ballot for a primary election. So If very few voters go, but these elections are really important, then any increase in participation in a primary election can have a significant impact. All right, then. So register to vote now as opposed to during the crush. So that's second action item. One, know when your primary elections are. Two, register to vote. Your vote matters. Yeah. And so primaries are very state specific. The rules for primaries are very state specific as well. So... If you're not sure what the primary rules are in your state, which is probably everyone, like I don't even remember, you know, what the California primary rules are, you want to Google that. And we've got some resources for you. Vote411.org, which is a project of the League of Women Voters Education Fund, is sort of a one-stop shop for election-related information. You can enter your address or search for your state to find out what you need to know about your state's upcoming elections, primaries, general elections, deadlines for voter registration, early and absentee voting opportunities, voting rules, and more. And the Federal Election Commission, which actually has a very active Twitter presence right now, so you can follow them on Twitter to find out updated information, also has updated lists of primaries and elections. All righty then. Well, so then that's 
the technical side of it, but who, like amongst the voters, can participate in primaries? That's a great question because that also varies by state, which, you know, is one of the benefits and sometimes downsides of having 50 states plus a District of Columbia in our voting process. So generally speaking, individuals designate the political party whose primaries they will vote in when they register to vote or update their voter registration. But some states will let you choose this on Election Day. So you should know if you need to mark your and choose your primary ballot early or if you can do that when you get to the polls. So overall, there are four different types of primaries, and these are state dependent, but these are the types of primary elections that happen. So open primary is where you can cast a vote in a primary regardless of your political affiliation. So as long as you're registered to vote, you can choose which party's primary you want to vote in when you get your ballot. Closed primaries, which I know that California is one of these states. In some states, only voters who are registered members of a political party prior to the primary may participate in choosing that party's candidates. So in states where the majority of voters typically vote for a certain party, closed primaries can play a large role in determining the winner of the general election. Interesting. Okay. Right. Yeah. So if you are in a state that has a closed primary and you want to vote in a specific primary, you need to make sure that you are registered for as a member of that political party before the date of the primary. All right. So as there is open and there is closed, then there is the hybrid semi-closed. And in these states, voters who have not previously chosen a political party have the option to choose which party primary to vote in, while voters registered with a party may only vote in that party's primary. So this system represents a middle ground in that independent or unaffiliated voters can still participate, but voters cannot vote outside of their party. So like your state, Sarah. Yeah, Colorado. Yeah. Colorado is semi-closed slash hybrid for sure. Yeah. And then just to make it fancy, there are some states that participate in the top two primaries. So voters select their choice for nomination from a list of all candidates, regardless of party affiliation. The two candidates who receive the most votes become the candidates in the general election. What states do that? I don't even know. I don't know. That's wild. Okay. Yeah. All right. So then we talked about primaries, but what else out there? Like it's the caucuses, right? That's the other way to do it, which is this crazy Colorado had that. I feel like we'd stop. I don't remember even. I need to look that up. But talk to me about caucuses. Yeah, so there's a minority of states that hold a nominating caucus instead of a primary. So instead of having like a secret ballot, a small group of party leaders or a broader group of voters choose the party's nominee for the general election. So sometimes voters from any party can participate in this caucus. But unlike a primary election, nominating caucuses are run by the party itself, which is interesting. And that seems to me more like the national conventions and so forth that are party specific that we always see on, you know, that are broadcast live, but much smaller versions on a state level. But what I thought was interesting, and this might be super nerdy of me, is that states could... <laughs> I just held up four, four times me, Sasha's nerdy. Keep going. <laughs> Is that different parties can pick different ways of selecting their candidates. Basically, in Alaska and Nebraska, Republicans hold primaries while Democrats convene caucuses. And that's flipped in Kentucky. That's wild. I mean, that's literally, from what I understand, because my friend went to the Colorado caucus once, like, you literally are in heaving teams of people in an area and moving from room to room in order to pick a person. Like, it 
requires way more effort to show up in person and do that, I think, than like a secret ballot where you can mail it in or like hand it in. But it's fascinating because it probably seems so much more real. Yeah, you're definitely a part of that political process than when you are moving as a group, as a team, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, so regardless of whether your state does a primary or a caucus or both or, you know, some version of that, the next step in the election process is nominating conventions during which political parties each select a nominee to unite behind. And that's when, since we have two major political parties, you have a Republican nominee, you have a Democrat nominee. And each presidential nominee also announces their vice presidential running mate at that time. So for 2020, the Democratic National Convention, or DNC, will be held in July in Milwaukee. And the RNC, or the Republican National Convention, will be held in late August in Charlotte. So why is there such a difference, right? Because at that point, then the Republicans will know who they're going up against is it always that delayed by like a month where the parties do the convention so differently? Yeah, I think there's always been a delay, but I'm not sure why. So if someone out there knows, that would be great. I always thought it was because they had to get all of the broadcast people and all of the everyone who's covering that convention to one place and then to the other place. But I also think it's interesting because if you have like one established candidate and there's no I mean, because right now, there is no other Republican candidate than Trump. So the national, the RNC is sort of like a show. Yeah. Like a process just for doing it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, in the past when Obama, you know, was up for a second term, like that was sort of the flip. That was the DNC. So I think you highlight rising stars in the parties, you know, who's chosen to speak. Right. And you sort of highlight the issues because the candidates will give their speeches, you know, about what's important to them. But I think it really sets a tone if you don't have multiple candidates out there. That's interesting. All right. I'm going to think about that one for a little bit. All right. What happens then on the actual general election date? So that's the day that we all sort of recognize as like the day you go into your polling place to vote for president, among other things. But I think where we always don't understand what happens is that the tally of those votes, the popular vote, doesn't determine the actual winner of the election, which is interesting, to say the least. Yeah. So we use the Electoral College. To win the election, a candidate must receive the majority of electoral votes. And in the event, no candidate receives a majority, which is like, I think that's maybe never happened, but very rarely happened. The House of Representatives chooses the president and the Senate chooses the vice president. That's definitely not happened in modern times. Right. And I was like, I had no idea that they would have so much power. So I guess that speaks to, again, who we vote into those positions matters too. all the local elections and everything. Yeah, all of that. And like, as we're recording, you know, like, we have seen some recent elections where there's been a huge flip like Virginia. So every vote at every election matters, not just the general election in November. Okay, so then let's go into what on earth is the Electoral College? Because, come on. Right. So despite popular belief, the Constitution and, you know, what everyone points to for giving us the right to vote as citizens, it does not provide for the popular election of the American president, which means that people can't actually 
vote directly the American president into office. It provides for the popular election of presidential electors. And at this point, I was like, what? So each candidate who qualifies for a given state's ballot must designate certain individuals who will serve as his or her electors if that candidate wins the popular vote in that state. So basically, if you're on the ballot, you're like, these dudes are my electors and those will be sort of my representatives. And who are those people typically? Are they usually in politics, too? Are they your buddies? Are they like... I don't know. That's a good question. I've never known anybody who was designated an elector. I didn't know that they were actual people, to be honest. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense now. Right. So when each state certifies a winner of its overall popular vote, that winner is entitled to send all of their electors to that state's capital, where they will officially record their votes for the candidate. And all the electors in all the states do it on the same day, kind of like the presidential election is always on the same day, the first Monday after the second Wednesday of December. So it's sort of midway through December, actually. So I didn't realize there was a lag, like a six-week lag between the election, the popular vote election, and the electoral college registration of the vote, basically. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily matter a lot in a lot of ways, because oftentimes the popular vote, you know, aligns with sort of the electoral college. But there have been instances and including quite recently where that has not happened. And I feel like those challenges start to appear in that six week window where people are like, well, because it takes a while to count all the votes, too. So and there's no way that these electors can be like, can they be sneaky and say, well, I'm from this state, but I don't agree with that. So I'm actually going to cast my vote for the other person. Like, is that possible to have abuse of the system that way? I think like one time or there's been a couple of times where electors have not behaved in the way that they should have. But it's so marginal that that doesn't really happen, which is kind of amazing. So they're not required to. They are supposed to. Yeah, they're supposed to. Well, and as a designated, you know, elector, that is your person. So if you're unsure as to whether that person's actually going to cast that vote for you, that should not be your elector, I would think. I guess that's true. All right. You're right. Yeah. Oh, no, I meant more like the sore loser types. Oh, well, the winner wouldn't be because the winner sends their electors to the state capitol. So the losers wouldn't be sending those. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. So that's where they record their votes. So it's really the presidential electors are saying like this state goes for blah, blah, blah. So I thought it was that like the winner and loser, they had a certain number of electors that split the number and therefore they went, okay, no, I get it. So I got it. Yeah. So it's once the winner of the popular vote is certified in a state that winner's electors go to the Capitol and are like, yo, this is our person. Okay, so that is the case, except in all but two states, so Maine and Nebraska. And they have instituted a different system. So they've given two electoral votes to the statewide winner and one to the winner of each of the state's congressional districts. You know I'm going to ask the question. What are they? What are congressional districts? Yeah, good question. It's an electoral constituency that elects a single member of a Congress. So it's basically, it's a physical area, and it can be large or small because the congressional district is based on population. So that's why the census is important, because they get those numbers from the census, and then they create congressional districts within states. So because the Constitution allows individual states to determine the manner of their elections, that's how Maine and Nebraska have been able to create their own system. So and they're not alone in that other states have been thinking about different systems as well. 
Got it. But based on their overall population, Maine and Nebraska have only a set number, and it's within that number that they're allowed to federally, they have divvied it up in this way, basically. Yeah, and they have very limited districts. Like Maine has two districts, so its vote could be split 3-1. Nebraska has three districts, so it could be split 4-1 or 3-2 because they've got a vote per district plus their two votes. So Nebraska had a 4-1 split in 2008 when its Omaha-based district voted for Obama while the other districts went easily for McCain. Yeah. So you have flexibility as a state to decide if how you know, everyone else is doing the electoral college thing doesn't work for you. And some states have considered that. They've considered casting the state's electoral votes for whoever wins the national popular vote. So not just their state's vote, but whoever wins the national popular vote. So that would serve to undercut like the electoral colleges in democracy or like, you know, how each state sort of has power within that and elevate the idea of a national choice, regardless of state lines. I mean, that reminds me of the problem solvers caucus in Congress, like where they I think it's in Congress where they basically agree that whatever the majority wants, the rest will agree to to support the greater unity, I guess, for lack of a better term. And I like that idea of the district split, like that seems interesting because for certain cities might lean a different way than the rural areas. And that allows a state to represent its entire population more at, like evenly than an overall vote. Yeah. That state by state thing. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So for the present, however, so the electoral college apportions votes to the states in a very specific way. Each state is given a number equal to its Senate seats, which are always two, plus its seats in the House of Representatives. So that means that the seven states with only enough population to qualify for one House seat will get three votes each. But like states that are bigger, like California has 53 seats in the House. So they we get 55 electoral votes. And Texas has 36 seats. So they, they get 38. Yeah. So in total, the Electoral College had basically they had 535 seats with just the 50 states. But once the District of Columbia was included, the total number of Electoral College seats is 538. I mean, which is kind of small considering how large our country is and, you know, the diversity of yep. opinions and population. I mean, so is the system fair? You know, that's a great question. And I think we both have thoughts about the electoral college system. But the biggest issue that's come up is the prospect of a nationwide popular vote winner actually losing in the electoral college. And I think, you know, we've seen this a couple of times. So it's happened four times. And if you remember Bush and Gore and the resulting lawsuits in 2000, Al Gore got 48.4% of the popular vote to 47.9% for George W. Bush, which was a margin of about half a million votes. After a struggle over the count in one state, Florida, that went all the way to the Supreme Court, Bush was declared the winner with 271 votes in the Electoral College, one more than the minimum for a majority. Like, think about how close that is. Mm-hmm. Really, really close. Yeah. So because of how the Electoral College works, too, and how basically each state sort of is doing its own election because of, you know, the number of Electoral College votes, this encourages candidates to concentrate their campaign time and resources on what we call battleground states, which are generally medium to large states where neither party has an overwhelming advantage. So like super large states like California, Texas, or states that population-wise have a ton of votes like New York or Illinois are largely neglected 
whereas a few others, and I, these are in the news a lot during an election cycle, like Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and North Carolina, see a lot more of the candidates than the rest of the country combined. So in small states, I mean, those states, the seven states with only three votes, like they don't see the candidates at all. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, and that's when, you know, you're supposed to say everybody's vote counts, but it does feel like it's weighted differently depending on what state you live in. Yeah, it does feel that way. But don't lose hope. Still vote. (laughs) No. And, you know, we're going to talk about why that still matters, because also remember, primary is really important. Like you can do a lot in a primary. And if you don't vote, you're in that super small or if you do vote, rather, because there's such a low turnout in primaries, your vote matters that much more. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, just to round out the Electoral College, there are an even number of Electoral College votes. So you could have an even split, which is like basically never happened, but it's possible. And we did have, like you mentioned, you know, did anyone come and ever sort of like, you know, vote in a way that they said they weren't? They did do that once in 1988. But I guess you can't account for you know, lying liars in that way. And goes back to you really should pick your delegates as like someone that's not going to do that. But I think it's saying something that there's only been one instance of that, at least recorded in modern times. Okay. So then let's go back to it. Like, you know, you mentioned Florida before, but like, does my vote actually count? Yeah. And I don't think we can say that enough. It totally does. And we'll talk about why, because there are a bunch of reasons why. But there are, and there's a great article that we will link to, so join our email list so that you can get that. NPR put together a list in 2018 of a whole bunch of elections, primaries in general, where one, yes, one vote was the deciding factor. So this does not include the presidential election, but it includes pretty much every other elected office you can think of. But and the way they decide who wins when it's like a one vote or it's a tie, they've literally drawn a name out of a hat like you won the raffle for the free lunch at work or something like that. Except this time it's not a free lunch. It's a congressional seat where you can affect policy on a state and national level. And, hey, maybe even elect like the president if, you know, the whole electoral college thing fails. No biggie. Out of a hat. Okay, so votes do count. Right. Literally out of a hat. So your vote counts because one vote clearly can sway. And again, in a general election, you're not just voting for the president. You are voting for a whole host of other things that affect you directly. But, you know, although I just talked about how that was sort of a carve out from the presidential elections where there's never been anything that close, there have been some that are really close. And again, back to Bush and Gore, there was only a 537 vote margin that George Bush won Florida by in the 2000 presidential election. 537 votes out of almost 6 million votes cast. Or Donald Trump winning the presidency, and so an even more recent example, despite losing the popular vote by almost 3 million votes, all because he eked out just enough, which was 70,000 votes out of 12 million in three states to win the Electoral College. So your vote definitely matters. That is a such a small margin when you're considering how many millions of votes out there that each vote counts. That's totally true. Okay. I mean, I was going to say so many people, like, can we talk about the Huffington Post article that you talked or that you showed me before? Like it was about the 2016 elections. It was before them, but it was like, here are the list of people's excuses for why they don't get out on election day or even just mail the damn thing in beforehand. But like, 
Can we go through some of those excuses that people use? Would that be helpful? Yeah, let's do it. Number one was my vote won't count. I mean, we just talked about it, but. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, you feel powerless, right? You're like, I'm in a big state, right? Doesn't matter. I'm in a tiny state. It doesn't matter. But while it's true, as we just discussed in great detail, how the Electoral College elects the president, it's still the popular vote that decides who the Electoral College must support. So if you live in California and the majority of the people in your state choose to vote for, let's say, Kamala Harris for the Democratic nominee, right? And she's a Democratic nominee, let's say, and she is running in the general election. Then she, if the majority of the people vote for her, she will win the state's 55 electoral votes, which is over 20% of the electoral votes she needs to win the presidency. So it's very simple and it starts with your vote. Okay. But then what about what's the point of voting when I already know that my state will swing Republican or Democratic? Yeah. So that is a great question and one that I've heard a lot. In the 40 non-swing states, this is a very common question. But let's think about what makes a swing state. A state only swings to one party because the majority of people who voted support that specific party. So this feeling of powerlessness or something is inevitable can be countered by your vote. So, for example, in states that historically swing conservative, like Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, a lot of the A's, Alaska, Arizona, and West Virginia, less than 50% of the voting population voted in the 2012 presidential election. This means that over 50% that chose not to vote could have definitely overpowered that conservative vote and awarded the state's electoral votes to the opposite party. So if you think about you're assuming that your state swings in a specific way because of what has happened in the past, but each election is a different opportunity to manipulate that, especially if a whole bunch of the conservative voters or progressive voters are not showing up to the polls. That's a really, really, really good point. This next question ties into the sense of sort of apathy, right? Why should I vote? It's not like it's going to affect me. Yeah, I think, you know, apathy is really common. We talked about that in our last episode, too, with, you know, all the information that's out there. But whether you like it or not, every single aspect of your life is affected by politics. You know, when we were talking about the farmers who are losing income because of the tariffs that are being put on their crops, like that comes from political decisions. So and every one of those people who are making those decisions were put in power through a popular vote. Yeah, my dad always used to say, so if you're doing nothing, you have no right to complain. He always was like, you have to vote in every single election, no matter how big or small, like you can only change the status quo through making your voice heard through voting. So he was a big supporter of basically, if you don't vote, then you really have no right to complain. I'm with your dad on that. That's so true. I think we have a voice, which is a lot more than a lot of people in other countries have. So we have that power to use it, too. So you get it. Go vote. But if you need a little more convincing, if your individual vote wasn't important, then you should ask yourself, why are certain states working so hard to block minority votes? And our friends at the Southern Poverty Law Center had the same question Because at the intersection of race and politics in the United States lies voter suppression, which is basically the array of laws and election practices intended to make it harder for people of color to vote. And it became a lot easier to do this since 2013 when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled five to four to gut a key provision of the Voting Rights Act. So that decision meant that states with histories of racial discrimination were no longer required to pre-clear changes in voting laws with the federal government before they went into effect. 
So basically, states that had been hugely discriminatory in the past previously had to, like, go to the government and say, like, yo, we're going to make these changes. They might be racist, but we're going to do it. And the government would be like, sorry, you can't because that's illegal. Why did they vote to change it? I don't even understand. Good question. But we've seen them in the midterm elections. Like we saw them a lot in 2018. And we have so many examples of this. You know, one of them, which has gotten a lot of press, is the felony disenfranchisement law in Florida, which strips the right to vote from people with felony convictions for the rest of their lives. This law is rooted in the state's 1868 constitution and was which is never really good news when the Constitution was made like right after the Civil War, too, and was intended to ensure that white elites remained in power after the Civil War, when a majority of the state's population was black and southern states were required by the federal government to allow African-Americans to vote. So as the Washington Post, Tim Elfrick wrote in 2018, the only old guards only hope was to somehow ban black voters without violating Reconstruction Acts passed by Congress after the Civil War. Huddled in Tallahassee backrooms throughout that cool January, they found just the ticket, a lifetime voting ban on anyone with a felony conviction. Combined with post-war laws that made it easy to saddle black residents with criminal records, legislators knew they could suppress black votes indefinitely. And it really worked. So because it was super easy to pen felony convictions on black people who were heavily targeted by law enforcement under the black codes enacted just after the Civil War. And because discrimination has been ongoing, this law is still working out really great for the purpose of voter suppression in Florida. Today, about one fifth of all black adults in the state can't vote. Right. Total freaking head shake. And, you know, there's going to be people out there who are white. They'd be like, well, but they got a felony conviction, so they shouldn't be allowed to vote. And it's hard. You have to see the systems in place that make it much more likely for a black person to be convicted of a felony than a white person for the exact same crime. And that's the part that a lot of people might be missing about that part of it. Yeah, that's so important. I'm glad you brought that up. So, you know, Florida has like actually tried to fix this. In a historic vote last year, they overwhelmingly passed Amendment 4 to abolish the discriminatory law and re-enfranchise more than 1.4 million people with previous felony convictions. That was the largest enfranchisement by a single law since the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But then the state's Republican-controlled legislator a legislature stepped in to undermine the will of the voters by passing Florida State Bill 7066, which restricts the vote to only those who are able to pay off all their fines and other court-ordered financial obligations, which is pretty impossible for more than one million of the newly enfranchised. And, you know, we're going to talk about this and the criminal justice system as we unpack election issues. But this was just a head shake for me. And... I mean, that would be anything that would be child support to parking tickets to I mean, anything that's court ordered. Well, and also, if you're newly enfranchised and you have a felony conviction and you're working to, you know, figure out how to make that money and you're paying, you're suddenly forced to pay all these fines in order to vote. But Florida is not the only state that where this is happening. In Alabama, a law passed in 2017 finally clarified, quote, crimes of moral turpitude with respect to voting rights. This legal wording had been purposely ambiguous, which made it easier to strip voting rights from African-Americans. So before passage of this legislation, there was no definition on the books, which meant that people with felony convictions in their past generally couldn't register to vote. And county registrars enjoyed almost sole discretion to determine which voters were disqualified 
from voting. So can you imagine that power? What the hell is a <laughs> I have committed a crime of moral turpitude. I know. Well, and then county registers are like, yo, I'm just going to decide that that seems like a crime of moral turpitude. So I'm just going to remove you from the voting rolls. That is ambiguous. Yes. Yes, to say the least. But that doesn't, you know, even though this law was passed in 2017, that doesn't mean discrimination is over because the county attorney in at least one case still made the illegal determination that at least one individual with a past conviction should be removed from the rolls. And that's just like one that we know of. But so, okay, just a couple more examples, just, you know, make you feel really good about voter suppression in the United States. I may have to just cut you off soon because it's going to be really freaking depressing. I know. So Georgia is very similar to Florida, too. You have a very high incarceration rate of black people. The state has the highest rate of people under correctional state supervision in their nation, and they require people to pay off all those fines to end this supervision. So beyond this felony disenfranchisement, they have had a whole lot of physical issues related to the polling places and voter ID issues, which has disproportionately prevented many students and people of color from casting their ballots. Wow. Right. And so there are court cases coming forward, including in December, the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the Fifth District will hear arguments for the Southern Poverty Law Center's lawsuit against Mississippi's lifetime voting ban for people convicted of certain felonies, which included acts like stealing firewood from your neighbor's yard. The um, common felony of that. So that is just mind boggling. Actually, I didn't like when you said some of the felonies and they were made up or whatever, but that is a very specific WTF moment of like, what? Yeah. So, you know, it was written into a post-Civil War constitution, which, you know, good things come from that, which also included a poll tax, a literacy test, and was crafted specifically to disenfranchise free slaves and their descendants. Because basically they had in 1867, 67% of otherwise eligible black voters in the state were registered. So that's like two thirds. Within two years of the enactment of the new constitution, that number had plummeted to less than 6%. What? Right? So between 1994 and 2017, nearly 50,000 Mississippians were banned for life from voting due to conviction. And today, one in six black adults cannot vote in the state of Mississippi. Wow. So I guess, should we say it again? Yeah. Go vote. Definitely register to vote. I guess the to-do list right now is register to vote, know where your primaries are or when your primaries are, And start thinking about your issues and which candidates in the primaries align for that if you're allowed to vote in those particular primaries that matter. Yes. And keep listening because we're going to unpack some of the issues that we think are key for 2020 in our upcoming episodes. Yeah. You can go to our website at DearWhiteWomen.com and drop us a line if you have any ideas for bigger issues that we need to talk about. Or drop us an email at hello at DearWhiteWomen.com because we are putting together the whole election issue slew of conversations from here on out. Yes. And if you see our social media as well, you can comment on Twitter, DWW Podcast. We do love especially sarcasm there. (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. No, not at all. And Instagram has a bunch of different behind the scenes photos. And then obviously, as we mentioned it a few times, our email list, we're going to have a couple of good things coming, including some ideas about where we can vote with our wallets going forward for the holiday season. So that's all at our website, dearwhitewomen.com. If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. 
Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't, sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com, and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there. 